Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Today's guest is David Busby. David has been starting, building, and investing in impact businesses for the last 27 years with an emphasis on renewable energy generation, energy storage and grid services, wastewater treatment, and e-commerce. He's currently on the board of Cambrian Innovation, Leading Edge Crystal Technologies, Paragon Power, and STEM, as well as being a member of the investment committee at Prime Coalition. In the past, he's been a founding investor and director of Sunrun, Sun Edison, ValueClick, Brilliant Light Power, Bright Plain Renewable Energy, Prevalent Power, Resource Holdings, and Best Internet. He's got an MBA from Harvard and a BA from Middlebury. Now, that bio was so long that when David came to do this interview, he actually brought a cheat sheet, which was a piece of paper that just listed all the projects he'd been involved with because even he can't keep track of them all. I thought this episode was great because we talked about how David defines impact, what led him down the impact path, how that definition has evolved from when he started doing impact operating and investing and today. We talked about his transition into focusing on our carbon problems specifically. We talked about the kinds of businesses he's involved with today. We talked about the lens through which he determines which businesses to get involved with, what stage he likes to get involved with, what founding teams he looks for, what he looks for in a market opportunity and timing. And we also talked about the bigger picture, this climate pickle that we're in and how the heck we get ourselves out of it. You will not find many people that are better versed in this stuff than David Busby. And I learned a ton from this discussion. I hope you do as well. David, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. Great to have you. I feel like you're like a best kept secret, at least to me, the newcomer coming into the space, because yours is not a name I've heard a lot. But when you look at what you've done and what kinds of companies you've been involved in and how many of them you've been involved in at such a strategic level in clean energy and beyond, it's staggering. That's because I'm older than most of the people you've been interviewing. (laughs) (laughs) I love that, but I I mean, I don't know where you find the time to sleep. You get better at it, but that used to be a problem when I was younger. Yeah. And it's also, it's a little bit of a challenge to talk to someone like you because some of the people I've been talking to, it's really easy to put them in a box. Like you are, your whole career has been doing X, right? And so it's like, oh, if I want to talk about X, I bring them on. You've done a lot of different things across a lot of different areas in a lot of different kinds of roles. So you're a unicorn. (laughs) Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah. So how would you describe your background and what it is that you do? Maybe we'll start with now. Sure. So the easiest way to describe it is I'm a company builder. And so I don't fit in the box of I'm a clean tech executive or I'm an impact investor. I've tended to cross that line quite a few times. Since 1990, I've been essentially starting impact businesses, although we didn't call them impact businesses back then. My first business was a recycling business. Coming out of business school, my first business card said garbage man. (laughs) So that's where it started. So you have a sense of humor is what you're saying. Try to. (laughs) 
So it all revolves around building companies that have some impact. In my case, most of them have been environmental impact businesses. And whether I'm the founder or the CEO or a board member or an investor kind of falls out of the specific situation and what the company needs. But I've played all those roles and sometimes all of them at the same time, other times one or two. But what I'm most focused on now is early investor strategic board member role. Which I would imagine by definition takes less time from an operating standpoint. Right. Anyone who's been the CEO of a startup knows the amount of effort that requires and time. And uh, I'm nearly 60. And while I like to think that I could keep up in that role, the truth is that probably not at this stage. It's all encompassing. And if you look back towards the earlier stages of your career, what is it that led you to head in this impact direction? Was it a single kind of watershed moment or did it happen differently than that? I mean, just talk to me about that transition, if you may. Two moments. One, you have to go all the way back to 1978. That's embarrassing. (laughs) I was in college and I was a political science major, mainly focused on U.S.-Russian relations. I was two. You were two. All right. That's good. (laughs) So you remember it. (laughs) I do. Let me just channel my two-year-old perspective, which is not too far away from my current perspective, but just with a little, little more rings around the tree. So anyways, I was studying how the U.S. and Russia interacted in the Mideast. It was all oil politics. And I started thinking, boy, it would be really neat to see if we could create another source of power besides oil because we're constantly fighting over it. It causes wars. It causes lots of problems. And so I went to a talk in Manhattan. I can't remember how I ended up there, but I ended up in Manhattan in a talk with a guy who's running the only real solar manufacturing plant in the U.S. at the time. And it was, he was owned by SolarX at the time. It's gone through multiple ownership changes since then. And I built my own PV panel. And I stuck it on my roof at my college dorm. And I powered my stereo with it. And I thought it was... Were you the coolest guy in the dorm? Well, not many people knew about it because I used it as a joke. People would come in and I'd say hey, turn off the music, would you? And they'd turn it off and it wouldn't go off because I had it wired directly to the back of the the amplifier, amplifiers back then. And I just thought, well, this is really neat. So I always had my eye on what was going on in the solar industry since that point in time. And the other watershed moment was I was working after business school acquiring companies. And we acquired a company that was a division of Manville, John's Manville. And John's Manville was the company that had uh, all the building insulation and other markets, and they were using asbestos. And what I found out through that was that the people running John's Manville, this is all public, so I'm not saying anything that everyone doesn't already know, knew about this problem since the 50s. And so I saw at least five people die from asbestosis while we were owners of that business. And that was only over the course of two years. So at that point in time, I just decided, okay, that's it. I'm not going to spend my time and my energy and my life of my career unless it's doing something positive for the world. And I can honestly look at myself in the mirror and say, okay, this does have a positive impact 
uh, although we didn't call it impact back then. So those were the two moments that led me into, quote unquote, the impact world. So where'd you start? You had a second watershed moment, and what next? Recycling in California. I moved from Denver, which is where I was living, to California because they had the most ambitious recycling goals. And I bought an old scrapyard in Fairfield, California, about an hour north of San Francisco, and transformed it from a scrap metal business, which if you've ever seen a scrap metal business, they all look pretty much the same, big piles of steel and metal and junk in the backyard and not very friendly looking. So what we did is we transformed it into a retail looking atmosphere so mom and dad and the kids could bring their recycled cans and bottles and paper and plastic into the front door and we kept the, the institutional business coming in through the back door. Someone needs to build a nuclear plant this way, by the way. <laughs> that would be nice. They do in other countries. They make them a lot more, you know, they, they're, not, they're not so removed from yeah. the cities and they're a lot more accessible to regular people if they want to stop in and do tours and things like that. So, Interesting. I mean, I said that in jest, but actually I think it matters. Yeah, it does matter. So our plan was to make it friendly for people who wanted to recycle. We ended up getting in that Solano County, it was called, we ended up getting about 80% of all the business. We thought, okay, well, that worked. And we knocked it off about 30 times throughout other communities in California and had a nice recycling business. And then we sold it to a Swedish conglomerate called Tomra, which for some reason wanted to dominate the U.S. recycling market. And they liked our model. So they acquired us. And given that you were intent on finding something with an impact perspective, how did you define impact at that time when you were just jumping in? For us, it was all about reuse. So every can or bottle or piece of metal that we recycled was reused in some capacity in a new product. So all the aluminum gets smelted and goes back into aluminum cans. The uh, PET plastic would get chopped up. Most of it would end up in China, but it would go into rugs or coats or something like that. Paper would go back into fiber products. We measured it by how much waste we removed from the landfills and how much energy we saved by not having to use original materials in new products. And is that reuse the same criteria that you were using to, to select that opportunity in the first place? Pretty much. It was mainly focused on avoiding trash going to the landfill. The energy savings wasn't top of mind, but it is now in that industry. It's, a, it's actually a very big deal, the amount of energy you save by using recycled versus virgin material. So, And over the years, you've been involved in so many projects. Has that definition of impact stayed pretty constant or has it been evolving over time? And I, I guess, talk to me a bit about how that definition has evolved, if it has, since you first got into this area. Yeah. For me, it evolved from landfill avoidance and energy savings to CO2 reduction. When was that, that you made that transition? Probably starting when we started Sun Edison. So what was that? 2002. That became probably one of the top two reasons for doing that. The first one was just to get off carbon-based fuels for some of the same reasons I thought about in 1977, just to get independence from oil and gas. Um, so that energy independence has been a driving theme for you as well? Yeah. But also at that point in time, it was pretty apparent that climate change was becoming an issue 
And even if you weren't convinced about climate change at that point in time, just the amount of pollution that energy generation was causing could be solved with solar. And you already talked about your two watershed moments and the switch to carbon wasn't one of them. So what was it that brought about that awareness or transition in focus? Probably the energy crisis in California, which was approximately 2000. We had sold the recycling business. I had started another internet business that was sold at that point in time. So the first time in my life I had free time to think about what to do next. And so I spent a lot of time trying to figure out why the energy crisis occurred in California and what we might be able to do about it. And so I started reading not only the kind of wonky reports about how energy gets created and distributed across the U.S., but also the early climate change reports. And because I'd been following solar for, at that point in time, almost 15 years, I decided to really... Since the dorm room. Since the dorm room. I decided to really delve in and try and figure out what were going to be the technologies that were going to be successful as we shifted away from carbon-based fuels. And talk about your first foray into solar and also talk about just what the state of the solar ecosystem was at that time. The state of the solar ecosystem at that point in time was... This goes back to 2000, which is when I made my first investment in a company called Prevalent Power. There were really only, I don't know, two or three solar developers at the time. There was a company, I'm going to forget the name of this company, but SunPower ended up acquiring them. I want to say Nextlight, but that might be wrong. And uh, I invested in Prevalent Power really as an experiment. Prevalent Power was started by some guys that I knew from prior Silicon Valley experiences and we created a small developer that did very well in winning development proposals and putting solar PV up on, say, small commercial rooftops, so 500 kW size systems. And they were so successful that they kept coming back to me and the other investor, there were only two investors in the company, and asking for more money. And we said, well, that model doesn't really work because you'll continually dilute yourself as the founders And so it's not going to be a good outcome for you. So figure out how to finance those systems that you're putting up on roofs so you don't have to come back to us for more money. And they didn't quite figure that out. This was before the days of of the large-scale project finance that now exists? So we sold the company, and I went looking around for a different model, which evolved into Sun Edison. I met a guy named Jigger Shaw and Chris Cook. And the three of us started Sun Edison back in 2002. And Sun Edison's claim to fame was that we developed the first solar PPA at about the 2002-2003 time frame. Amazing. And now, of course, I mean, that's a mature vehicle for right. financing solar projects, right? Yeah, it's financed. Uh, I don't remember how much because I haven't checked in a while, but at least half a trillion dollars worth of solar projects. That was a good advance. <laughs> And you've gone on to be involved in a number of solar projects since then. Right. We sold Sun Edison in 2009. So we weren't the guys, for your listeners who know about Sun Edison, we weren't the guys who wrecked Sun Edison. (laughs) We were the guys who created it and turned it into a very attractive acquisition for a company called MEMC. So after we sold it, I became an investor and board member of Sun Run, which is now the largest residential solar company in the U.S., and at the time, it was us, and then Solar City came along right afterwards. And so we competed with Solar City for years and years for the 
number one spot, and we're currently in the lead again. I also got involved with a company called Bright Plain Renewable Energy, which when we were about to take Sun Edison public, we filed a preliminary S1 on a Friday, and Lehman Brothers went under on a Sunday. So no more IPO for Sun Edison at the time, which is why we sold it. But as part of that plan, we were going to create what's called now called the Yield Co., which is a way of getting public financing into utility-scale solar projects at very low cost. And since Sun Edison was sold as opposed to going public, we didn't do that. And so for one of my next ventures, we started a private Yield Co. using private institutional money where we would go out and buy solar projects at various stages of development, finish the development, and then manage them so that the investors got an attractive return on their money. And so about when did you shift gears to focus on carbon? Well, most of these solar companies, I have to look at my list here because <laughs> there's a few others I didn't mention. Wait, this is amazing. You are the first <laughs> guest I've brought on that's done so many things that you need to bring a list just to keep track for yourself. That makes me feel better about struggling with prep for this interview. <laughs> it's embarrassing, but true. I would love to take a picture of this. This is, a, I, In fact, I'm, I'm going to keep talking, but I am going to snap a photo of this because this is a classic shot. This is a memorable moment. <laughs> so all those solar, by the time Sun Edison and Sunrun, I was very aware of climate change and the effect that we could potentially have by taking these platforms, Sun Edison being the commercial and utility scale platform, Sunrun being the residential, and really scaling them. That's been something consistent since we started Sun Edison in my point of view is that if you really, really want to have impact, it's got to be really, really big. The problem is big. And I always make this comparison. If the problem was not people not getting enough gourmet coffee, you wouldn't start a corner coffee shop, you'd start Starbucks. You might start out with a corner coffee shop, but the goal is Starbucks. You want massive scale to really solve the problem. And so Sunrun and Sun Edison were both started with that goal in mind. So it was, it was not only convert to solar to get off carbon fuels, but impact the amount of CO2 that's being emitted into the air by converting uh, as much as possible to solar. So since you made that transition to focus on carbon reduction, other than solar, are there other areas you've been involved in or has it been exclusively solar since that? Yeah, there are other areas. STEM is an energy storage and grid services company that we started back in 2000 and. 10, I believe. And I was the founding investor and board member, and there were three entrepreneurs that started that company. And it now is the largest distributed energy storage and grid services company, I think, in the world, certainly in North America, but I think also in the world at this point in time. And so their business model was a way for, it had several winners. Customers, energy users would get lower demand charges because we would deploy battery stored power during peak periods as opposed to them paying higher rates at the utility. We would supply energy services to the grid when they needed additional power for a certain period of time. And this wasn't really part of our plan, but this became part of the effect. We were called the gas peaker power plant killer because 
if there's enough of distributed storage that's attached to the grid, when all the air conditioners go on in the Central Valley in San Francisco in the summer, as opposed to firing up a gas peaker power plant, you can draw on distributed storage to have the same effect. And so we are having a very definite effect on the amount of CO2 that gets uh, emitted as a result of our business. So when you go about choosing a project, do you typically get involved from day zero or what's kind of the sweet spot for when you come in? I like to get involved provided that I think the market and the entrepreneurs are in alignment. Sometimes they aren't, but provided they are. What does that mean? It means that you're not going to spend five years getting nowhere, right? As an entrepreneur, you're developing a solution to a real problem that the market is ready for. Got it. So market and entrepreneurs being in alignment, being that the entry point and strategy are well-timed? Well-timed, yes. So provided that? Provided that, I like to get involved very early because then you're affecting the DNA of the business in who are the top people in the early days and what the strategy is, not only market strategy, product strategy, financing strategy, all those things. If you don't get right from the outset, you usually have to reset at some point in time. And that resetting process is usually painful and lengthy. So I like to try and get involved early so you can have a smooth trajectory up. (laughs) Other than timing, what other characteristics do you look for in the market and team? For the team, I look at two things. Are they really mission-driven by whatever the mission is? Because as you know, starting a business and getting it to a certain stage is a lot of work. It's a lot of bumps along the road. There's a lot of different paths you have to explore. It's exhausting. So I want to make sure that the entrepreneur is, is really driven and not just for a quick win, but for the long haul. And I also make sure that the mission is impactful. In this day and age, most of that is CO2 reduction. That's about the biggest thing that I look at. How do you measure impactful? What I use right now is the amount of CO2 that we can reduce between now and 2050. That's my measuring stick. And what's the threshold for impactful? That's a good question. I would love hearing that. (laughs) Most people say it's got to be a gigaton, right? And is that, is that what the Breakthrough Energy Ventures team says? A I think that's what more? they say. Yeah. yeah, I think so. That's a good measure, but I don't think that's the only way you should look at it. Because if we use that measuring stick at the time for the businesses that I've started in the past, they wouldn't have measured up. Partly because we didn't know how to measure it accurately. And I'm You're still saying sometimes not- you can go in with it and it's unclear that it'll clear that threshold, but actually by the time the business matures, it can do that and beyond. Exactly. It's kind of like, I'm in my world, like apps and software and things like that. If you're creating something new that hasn't been done before, it might look like a toy and it might be hard to describe the true market opportunity coming in. Like Uber is a good example. It looked like a little app that like rich people use to like call their private car to come get them, right? Or actually, and it's like, well, how big is the taxi market? And it's like, well, that's one lens, but how big is the market of people that are driving or taking the train or doing other things that aren't taking taxis, but would if the service didn't suck so bad? Right. Or Facebook when they first started, right? It was just focused on a couple of colleges. And if you were an investor and said, well, I'm not investing in your app, unless you can show me that your market is a billion people, you miss some really obvious things, I think, by 
But you're saying the same applies when you look for impact from a CO2 standpoint as well. That's interesting. No one said that before. I think that you can get too focused on the immediate impact and forget the bigger picture that if you're really successful creating a product that reduces CO2, that the adoption rate could be staggering in the out years. And if it isn't immediately impactful, I'm not so concerned about that. The other thing I look for is a very profitable business model because it's my belief that over the long run, the only way you really scale is by having a very profitable business that attracts additional capital so you can keep growing. And so if I don't see a path to profitability that's realistic, then I don't uh, usually don't spend a lot of time on it. Well, so I find that statement interesting given that when you st- we started this discussion, one of the first words you said was impact. And what I've found as I've made the rounds is that people looking for profits are allergic to the word impact. And people that say impact oftentimes it, subliminally or subconsciously or consciously may be synonymous with concessionary in some way. So, But you seem to be defining impact differently than that. Am I hearing correctly? Yeah. I have lived by the belief that you need both. You need good financial profits and you need good impact. And if you can't have both, it's not ever going to have a large impact. That's my belief anyways. And so when I talk to impact only audiences, they probably don't like what I'm saying. And when I talk to profit only audiences, they may or may not believe in the impact statement. But that's my philosophy. You, so you why, need both. Why don't the impact people like what, what you're saying? Because I think it implies that somehow I'm not focused on the impact. I'm focused on making money as the first goal as opposed to impact as the first goal. And what I'm saying is combined, you're going to have the most powerful impact and I think the most powerful financial return because we're, we're going through a shift in consumer desires where if your product or service has a negative impact, I think you're going to be swimming upstream for a long, long time. Well, here's a question for you. So I find that there's this kind of fork in the road where if you talk to like the fancy named venture capital firms, for example, they don't like to have the impact firms on their cap tables because it shows like financial weakness. They haven't described it in those words, but that's the sense that I get, right? Is that it shows that they're not as mercenary from a return standpoint as they need to be to produce the best returns, right? And from the impact side, they might say, well, traditional VC, we don't necessarily want them on the cap table because like they have these time box funds and sometimes our kinds of companies, we don't need to be concessionary on the returns, but we need to be concessionary on time. And so the seven to 10 years, this isn't going to cut it. We need 15 or we need 20. We need patient capital. And so we find family office, for example, works better. What's your view of the world? And also to support that, the companies that you've been involved in from day zero or near zero, which paths have they typically gone as it relates to follow on financing? All right. So I've heard both of those arguments quite a bit. All I know is that my portfolio of its 16 companies now over 30 years has delivered way above average returns and way above average impact. And it's because we- Can we put any numbers on those? I can put some numbers on it. The IRRs, if you take a weighted average IRR, you have to understand that the way I invest money goes in and it comes out. And then I don't have a clock saying, invest all your money in three years or else. So I only invest when I see good opportunities. 
So doing a straight IRR is kind of a tough, the equation doesn't work. So you fall in the patient, but not concessionary on time, but not on returns. I'm patient. I don't think I have to put money to work. I'm impatient once the money is at work. I want the company to succeed quickly, just like every other venture capitalist would. But I don't say, okay, I've got $100 million and I've got to invest it in three years. So money comes in, may sit on the sidelines for a while until I see it again. So I take a weighted average of each company's IRR, weighted by the amount of money that's got in. And my returns have been over 50%. So that's uh, higher than normal. In the impact, if you add up all of the companies I've been involved in and do the analysis I mentioned of... If you uh, add up the CO2 removed from when that company started to 2050, uh, what is the collective impact? And it's approximately, it's over 1% of the CO2 that has to be reduced by 2050. And so- We just need 99 more David Busby's. If you had 75 more me, we would have a good grasp on how to- address climate change. We can make that a follow-on topic on or <laughs> off camera about how to do that, how to get 75 more David Busby's. That would be great. Or just give David Busby 75 times the money. <laughs> well, and that's one question I had for you actually is from a source of capital standpoint, do you have a formal vehicle that you're investing from or is it just your personal asset? It's been my personal assets, but I, I'm in the process of formalizing Don't say a anything plan you're not allowed to, talk about. to get more capital that I can manage. Got it. And is there like your dollars are basically a product is your dollars and your time and your expertise and your relationships and so on. And so what does that product look like? If I'm a, an entrepreneur or a set of entrepreneurs with a very early stage company that passes your threshold for timing and potential for CO2 reduction, et cetera, and uh, entrepreneurs that are in it for the long haul, do you have a typical check size and terms or is it very deal specific? It's usually very deal specific. What I try to do and what I'm trying to do with my philosophy around a fund is solve a couple of problems. One is the consistency of the mission. My average portfolio, average company life in my portfolio is about seven years from when I've invested until when they get liquid, either they get sold or they go public. So that's pretty fast. Yeah, that fits in traditional venture timelines. That fits. What I've seen be a problem is at different stages of that company's life, there's different investors. Usually angel investors can only invest for a certain period of time, and then they don't have a big enough checkbook. Or early stage venture investors might only invest in A and B, and then you get private equity that comes in, and they've got timelines where they want to get out. And when you have that mix of investors, they also have usually a mix of mission. And so it's hard to maintain the original impact mission of the company through those series of investors. And it's also very hard oftentimes to attract, especially in Silicon Valley, where as I've spent most of my investing career, it's very hard to attract the top talent when you're competing with apps and software and internet applications that have a shorter time horizon to liquidity and are probably paying more than some of these impact infrastructure companies can pay. And so it's a very real problem that I've seen over and over and over that the mission can change and you have to fight to keep it the same. And it's hard to track the top people 
when they know they have to go at it for seven to ten years before they get liquidity. And they may not get the same liquidity that they would get if they started a software company. So what I'm trying to do is get capital that's willing to invest all along the path from the earliest day to the last investment that's required so that the mission stays the same. And I'm also trying to, and this is very early stages, but create a vehicle where either investors or entrepreneurs can get some liquidity before the final liquidity event, whether that's an IPO or a sale of the company. And ideally, what I'd love to see is these companies maintain their missions and their people forever so that you're building long-term successful businesses that are focused on this mission. And it's hard to do that when the capital is split up into stages or there's not earlier liquidity events for the entrepreneurs. So what's the pitch then? If you're pitching an LP that's deciding between putting their money with you versus putting it with a more traditional venture fund, I guess what makes a good fit for an LP in the type of structure that you're talking about? The real answer is I don't know yet. I'm just at the early stages, and I definitely don't want to be presumptive here. But if you ask me what's the big holy grail goal here, it's to create a investment vehicle similar to what Berkshire Hathaway did for high-quality companies. I'd love to do for high-quality impact companies. That It doesn't really matter when you come in and invest and when you exit. We are company builders. We're building great companies that are focused on impact missions. And if we can get the financing structure right, you'll be able to hold on to the ownership for the rest of your life if you want, or if you're a charity or a fund or an LP for whatever time horizon meets your goals. Do you find that the companies that you've gotten involved with have you shied away from going to traditional VC as follow-on capital? Or what have the typical sources been of those companies? And what's your bias, if any, for the types of companies that you like to get involved with? So there are two questions. One was, what type of funders? So one is, so you said that it's the type of business that requires significant further capital down the road. Right. So where has that tended to come from? And also, where do you want it to come from? One is where it's actually been coming from. And the other is, where do you, if you could wave a magic wand, where do you hope it would come from? So where it has come from typically has been impact-driven venture firms. In the early days, there was very, very few of them. Today, there is a lot more. And it's come from them in the early stage and then private equity investors in later stage also with some sort of impact mission. And too often, it's come from selling the company. This is one of my frustrations is that at a certain point in time, the venture investors and the private equity, they need liquidity. And that's fine. That's their business model. Their investors deserve a return and they should get it. But what happens to me as the early investor, board member, mission-driven guy is that I don't want to sell. I don't want a new job. I want that company to keep growing forever and have big impact. And so ideally, that capital would come from either family offices or limited partners of some sort that have a longer time horizon. And then the company grows enough to be a public company so the future capital can come from the public markets. And the investors, earlier investors at that point can, in time can decide whether they want to stay in or keep their ownership for as long as they can. So what is it do you think that's causing these businesses to sell early? 
Most of it is a desire for a return by the early investors, right? The impact ones. Yeah. Yeah. Some of my companies were started too early before there was a lot more impact investors. So impact investors now may have a longer time horizon. So it may not be a valid point. But Sun Edison's example, we created a great company. We had to sell it because we needed $750 million of project funding one year and to meet our growth targets. And no one was going to lend that to a small company. So we had to sell ourselves to a larger company. It would have been great to hold on to the ownership of that company, continue growing it. We might have avoided some of the problems that they had after we sold it. If we'd kept the mission and the management the same, and as opposed to being broken up into smaller pieces, would have been, I think, a driving force of renewable deployment across the globe today. So having access to capital that would have gotten us through that period of time would have been great. There really wasn't, keep in mind, this was 2008 when we needed the capital. There really wasn't that type of impact capital around at that point in time. So, I mean, I've heard from you that your returns are above average, and I've heard from you that the average time horizon has been around seven years, but I've also heard that there's been a need for early investors to get returns, which has inhibited the companies from staying independent for to let the fruit get the ripest, if you will, and, and reach its full potential. If the returns are above average, well, and I've also heard you say that they require more time, but yet your typical time has been seven years. So I'm a little fuzzy there. But I guess the question I'm struggling with is, why does it require impact capital if you're generating top tier returns? To keep the mission intact, it's very easy to compromise on the mission if you're not focused on it. And if your goal as a financial investor is returns only, you're going to prioritize those. Mm -hmm. And what I'm saying is you can prioritize both, but it's hard work, right? You have to stay very involved at the strategic and at the board level and make sure the mission remains the same. So, I mean, you talked about Berkshire Hathaway, but are there any financial investors focused on this carbon problem that are doing what you're, what you're dreaming of doing well? I'm sure there are. I haven't spent a lot of time in my career figuring out who those are. So I haven't spent time like a venture capitalist would searching for who the right limited partners are. I've spent 99% of my time figuring out how to grow these companies and make them successful. So that's the transition I'm in right now. I've got to ratchet back the amount of time I spend on companies and stop investing in new ones for a little while. And what about the, uh, so not the limited partners, but the actual institutional investors themselves are there, I don't know if the word is front office, but the, you, whether it's a VC or a private equity firm, are there companies that have raised funds, that have raised money from limited partners that are doing the things you're talking about well today, that are role models? I honestly don't know. I'm assuming there are. I'm hoping Let there are. Let me ask it a few different ways. No, yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I guess just a random checklist of things I'd be curious to get your take on. Where does science risk fit in for you? Science risk? Yeah. I try to avoid it, but there's no avoiding it. So STEM was a pure science project. STEM was an idea in three guys. And it took us four years of very hard R&D to make it all work. And I went in early on that one because I knew how important it was to solar and wind, that there was a way of integrating the power that they created into the grid so it wasn't just intermittent power. 
So that was very much mission-driven. I'm involved with a company called Leading Edge Crystal Technology, which is probably two years of very hard R&D, doing things that people said couldn't be done. And that is very much mission-based for me because it can dramatically reduce the cost of solar, more so than just about any other development at this point in time, except maybe driving down the cost of residential solar customer acquisition. And I just, I'm a huge believer in the entrepreneur. So that's another science-driven project. But they all have very commercial applications once they hit a certain point in time. So it's not science just for the sake of proving something. It's proving an application that has a very distinct market use. And then probably the biggest science project I'm involved in, and this one's, <laughs> this one is maybe every uh, five to 10 years, I'll take a flyer on something. And this one's a flyer and it's called Brilliant Light Power. And it has been a 25 year long science project. I've been involved for six years, I think. But the mission is so impactful for me to say that I'm in the business of trying to create businesses that can get us away from carbon-based fuels and reduce CO2. You almost have to invest in this one if you have the fortune of having liquidity to do it. Because if they're successful, it's non-carbon-based fuel, very cheap and ubiquitous. What it type would of have fuel? a massive impact. It's pretty hard to describe, so I, I'm going to do it quickly and not try to bungle it. But it's basically manipulating the orbit of the uh, uh, neutron in a hydrogen atom mm -hmm. to create an enormous blast of light, plasma, that in turn creates an enormous amount of power. Is it fusion? No, it's not fusion. And if you, <laughs> if you ask the entrepreneur that, he would throw you out the, literally throw you out of the building. It's not fusion. It's novel. It's something that he has been developing, as I said, for 25 years, and he's very passionate about it. And I've seen enough evidence that uh, it's all real. It's just a question of commercializing it. And what about regulatory risk? Where does that fit in for you? That's a tough question to answer because I'm of two minds. One is it's very high. If you've ever been involved in any of the businesses that I've been involved in, you're constantly at peril of some regulation really throwing a wrench in your plans. So it's very, very high. Unavoidable. Unavoidable now, but the way I look at all the businesses I've been involved in is that it won't matter. At some point in time, it won't matter. Sun Edison's a good example. We had all sorts of regulatory risk. We needed net metering. We needed the utilities to be supportive. Sunrun the same way. We needed the investment tax credit. If those things had been pulled away, it would have been life-threatening for all of them. But the ultimate goal was the consumer is all that matters. If we can create a product that's better for the environment and cheaper, everyone's going to go in our direction. So long term, I don't think there's much regulatory risk because consumers will drive this marketplace and it won't matter. You won't need investment tax credits. You won't need net metering because solar will be so cheap and storage will be so cheap. You can just choose that as the option you want and you won't have to rely on any non-market-based influences. Now, having said that, regulatory risk today is a big risk. Current administration is a great example. 
right? It feels like from a regulatory point of view in the last couple of years, we've gone in reverse, which is really too bad. I am extremely hopeful, though, because the industry is pushing forward more aggressively than I've ever seen it. And so I think that regulatory risk at some point in time, we're not there yet. It just doesn't matter. Price on carbon? Think we need it? Think it'll ever happen? The best idea I've heard about carbon, I'll answer your first question, do we need it? Today, yes, I think we do. In the future, I hope we don't. So I hope it's one of those things that goes away over time. But the best idea I've heard there is it's called, I believe it's called the Carbon Dividend Plan, which is a political This is the one from the Citizens Climate Lobby? It's from a group that has James Baker and George Schultz and a bunch of other business luminaries, business and government luminaries. And the reason why I like it is it's a carbon tax, but they're not calling it a carbon tax. They're calling it a carbon dividend so that you would pay if you are driving a gas carbon-based automobile and you emit X amounts of CO2, that would be calculated by the amount of fuel you use. And you would pay a tax, but it would be dividended back to the general populace. So very similar to what Alaska did with their oil and gas program, where they lease oil and gas properties, but they take a certain amount of profit and they send it back to every citizen of Alaska. It's a way, I think, of getting the U.S., populace, which seems to be torn about whether there should be any kind of carbon tax or not, to accept something where that tax is not going into the federal government and then lost somewhere and people don't know whether it's doing the right thing and actually going back into the pockets of the consumer. And those who consume more carbon-based fuels will pay more than they get back. So I like the plan because I think it's politically feasible but I don't, I don't know enough about it right now. I, I think a carbon tax in and of itself is politically pretty difficult to get done. How much of a barrier is the lack of long-duration energy storage in large-scale deployment of renewables? I think it's a barrier now, but I think it's going away quickly. Through what means? Just cheaper battery, cheaper energy storage. It's getting to the point where, don't quote me on these, but I've seen large projects offering power in the three to four cent a kilowatt hour range, including energy storage. So it's firm, firm power, whether it comes from the panels or from the battery, doesn't matter. So once energy storage, once the battery prices start coming down, and they are, I think it won't be a barrier anymore. You'll be able to offer firm power 24 hours a day. So where does that leave you then in terms of the need for nuclear and your thoughts on that? I'm not a nuclear expert. I have never focused on it, mainly because of the risk of some sort of catastrophe. I just have never focused on it. I think if we can exist without it, we'll be safer. So I guess on the one hand, you've got people like Mark Jacobson at Stanford that are talking about 100% renewables, and then you've got people like Michael Schellenberger talking about 100% nuclear. Where do you fit on that spectrum in terms of what we should be shooting for? I would say, personally, I'd say 100% renewables. The market will end up telling us where we do end up. If nuclear can become extremely safe, then why not? But I just, I've never, I haven't gone down that path, mainly because of a, a, my own personal philosophy 
on the risk of nuclear is too high. And uh, I'm also probably not smart enough to understand nuclear, to be honest with you, uh, to invest in something and really, really understand it. I'm just not, I don't think I have the background to be the best at that. But if there were two statements and one is 100% renewables and one is 100% zero carbon energy sources, you think 100% renewables is what we should be striving for, and that if it's zero carbon but not a renewable, then it's a distraction. I think so, yeah. And there's technologies. I'm invested in one of the, the carbon capture companies that can, if we're in a bind, which we are, absolutely in a bind. We're not doing enough fast enough to meet the 1.5% C goals or 2% C goals, whichever ones you, you ascribe to. We're not doing enough fast enough. So things should accelerate, but I don't think they're going to accelerate fast enough. So having something like carbon capture to remove carbon from the air as an interim solution, I think is a good idea. And I'd rather see us spend our money on that as opposed to building nuclear facilities that might have a 40-year lifetime and a risk that I think is too high. But for all the nuclear fans, I freely admit, I don't know what I'm talking about there. I just have this feeling that the risk is too high. I mean, we could spend a whole episode just on that. But first, I just want to preface with, I am far from an expert as well. And I don't claim to be. I feel like I know very little and I'm trying to learn more. But one of the things I've been hearing as I've been making the rounds is that if you just look at the math, we're going to need it. And the other thing is that a lot of the objections sound a lot like what you just said, where it's like, well, it's too big a risk. And I don't really understand it to know that, but it's just a feeling. But if you talk to the people that are experts, they tell you that if you really dig in, that relative to something like coal, for example, the risk is actually way smaller. And if you look at overall casualties or ill health symptoms or things like that, relative to a bunch of things that fall within the realm of socially acceptable today, not optimal, but like socially acceptable that nuclear for whatever reason is held to a way higher standard than things like coal, right? And that the safety concerns are actually way overblown in that context and from a math standpoint that we're going to need it. Now, I don't know enough to know if that's true, but it does make me want to dig in a lot more closely because if we're going to need it, if that's true, those two things, one, that we're going to need it, and two, that the safety concerns are overblown, well, then we should be going in the opposite direction than we're going. And I don't know if they're true. I'm not an expert, right? But that's something that I take very seriously. Yeah. I'm not, uh, like you, I'm not an expert, so I can't really opine. But if that's true, if they're safe enough that lots of intelligent people say this is safer than coal, for example, when you factor in all the health risks, then I would say take an all of the above approach. Gosh, you know what this makes me want to do? We've never done this before, but you're such an expert on the side of the world that you're coming from. And by the way, I'm a pragmatist. I'm not saying nuclear, yes, renewables. No, of course, renewables. Like I'm an all hands on deck. Like that's where I'm coming out so far, right? But you're 100% renewables guy, but that's got an open mind, but that just doesn't know enough. It makes me think that there's a discussion to be had between you and maybe someone that comes from the nuclear side, but is like you also has an open mind and just have a discussion and make that an episode. That would be fine. One of my advisors at Sun Edison built a nuclear plant in California. He was the ex-CEO of PG&E. And I liked having him as my advisor. He wouldn't join my board because he thought Solar was a bunch of tree huggers and was never going to succeed. But it was great to have his opinion because he could point out all the things he thought I was doing wrong. 
He could point out how the utilities would react. And he actually turned out to be the most valuable advisor to me at Sun Edison because he was, he was a critic. So I try to keep an open mind, and I, don't, I just don't know enough about it. It's hard politically to get it done, right? Nothing, no new nuclear plants have been built in the U.S. for however long it's been. Every investor I know in nuclear has never had a happy ending. They're 20 years into some of these projects. So that's where my bias stems from. You know what I love, though, is that I love that you have a bias, but it's not religion. And that it's just it's a bias unless proven otherwise. And thus far, it hasn't. And that's to me, that's like, while I have a different bias, I think that's a really healthy worldview. And it makes me really excited because I feel like there's a counterpart to you that's coming from the opposite perspective, right? And that that would be just such an amazing, fascinating perspective that for anyone like me who's just trying to get to the truth, and probably for each of you as well. So, so I'm going to tweet after this, and it's going to be like renewables, you know, experienced <laughs> renewables veteran who's in 100% renewables camp because he doesn't really understand the other side, but has concerns seeking someone who comes to the other side and that has concerns about renewables, but also an open mind to have a discussion and who's the right person and do like a public call out to try to find you a mate. That would be good. I'm, I'm sure I'm sure they're out there and I'm sure their intentions are good. So it'd be, it'd be fun to meet them. Well, and, and I can tell you, I mean, because I've been talking to some of them from a mission standpoint, everyone wants the same thing, which is to decarbonize and minimize overshoot and minimize ill effects and deaths and forced migration and droughts and famine and all the bad things, right? I mean, everyone kind of comes from that spirit. It's more just a question of how. And from my standpoint, I have no religion. The how is whatever proves to be the best in a world of suboptimal options, right? I mean, there's no, but everything needs to be compared against status quo, which is the most unacceptable of any path. Yeah. So, but the strong opinions and people are really passionate, but their intentions are right. We just need to kind of find a way to get everybody rowing in the same direction. Yeah. I think we're getting close. I think there's more energy behind solving this problem than I've ever seen. And it's all passionate energy, which is great. And so hopefully the tipping point is soon where as opposed to being something that half of the country thinks that eh, this would be a good idea to do, it becomes 80% of the country saying, we have to do this. Because once you have that type of critical political mass, people forget the problems that the world has solved in the past. And I'm confident that this one can be solved. Just we got to speed it up. <laughs> we just need to get to the place as a country where the rest of the world already is. Not all of the rest of the world, but there are a lot of countries that are way ahead of us. Yep. You're absolutely right. Well, last question. Gabe. <laughs> we well, no, we I, have a great yeah. political discourse, but I don't think that's the purpose here. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, I mean, it is relevant because- Very relevant. Yeah. If you want to solve climate change, the number one thing you need to do, at least from this country's standpoint, is get this current administration out of office. But I, you know, I, I didn't say that. I, I would agree. The, the, thing, <laughs> the thing that makes me hopeful is I honestly don't know where my generation is. I'm as shocked as everyone else that the current administration is in power. So there's clearly a lot of people that disagree. But I get the feeling that my kids' generation, they're just aghast at how stupid we are, just absolutely how badly we've messed it up. And so, and I think every generation feels like that about the older generation, every new generation, but I just get the feeling that they're just not going to put up for it. And whenever that political power shifts, it's not changing again. This is a problem that has to be solved. I hope so.
Last, well, two last questions. Second to last question. If you had $100 billion, you could put it towards anything to maximize its impact on decarbonization. Where would it go? How would you allocate it? Uh, $100 billion? $100 billion. There was a study done back in the early 2000s by some guys out of Silicon Valley who said they could buy the presidency for $450 million. And they had a really good analysis and it was believable so for a hundred billion i take five billion and i'd buy the presidency if you could do that with someone who is really had as one of their goals to solve climate change um i would probably take 20 billion and lobby congress to get the same thing done because with that kind of money you get stuff done it's clear It'd be nice if you didn't have to do that, but that's how it works. So buy the presidency, buy the Congress, get this stuff passed, whatever the legislation is to really make this a priority for the country. Same priority as a World War I or a World War II or putting someone on the moon. We can do it. And then I take the other half of what's left and split it up or the $75 billion that's left, I'd split it up and say maybe two-thirds of that on existing technology, just accelerate it, and the other third, which is still $20 billion or so, on new technology, longer-term, go-to-the-moon type solutions. And then final question, which is just speaking to the listeners out there who maybe feel like I feel where they are concerned about climate change, they really want to help, they don't really understand the problem, how to help, where to start, what advice do you have for people like that trying to figure it out? I think the easiest thing is demand it from the companies you buy products from. It's kind of hard to tell someone, go carbon neutral, right? Don't drive your car, don't get in a plane, don't go on a boat, don't buy food that was trucked from far away. I think that's asking too much of people. But you can demand those things from the companies that you're buying things from, and they're starting to listen. All of them are starting to listen. That's one way of doing it. Another way of doing it is demand it of your investments. There's a lot of funds now that have ESG mandates. It's kind of hard to tell how serious they are about them and how to measure them, but it's moving. It's all moving in the right direction. So put your money where your convictions are. Invest in those types of things. Just be careful to invest in good ones. And I think ah, third one is vote for people, <laughs> right? Those would be the three most important things. Demand it of the products, the companies creating the products and services you use. Demand it of where your money is going to work. And then vote. Vote for people that are focused on this as a problem. Amazing. Well, we covered so much ground. I learned a ton. David, thanks so much for coming on the show. You've been a great guest. Thank you. Appreciate it. Fun. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs 22 where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.